Welcome to another episode of sasslife.fm. Hey, Chris, how you doing? I'm doing well. How are you, Sam? I'm doing just fine. You coming off a good weekend here? I am. Yeah, we had a nice, nice weekend at home. My beloved Hawkeyes won again, so that's that's all good, always good. We got a big game coming up on Friday against Penn State or Saturday against Penn State, and so it's gonna be a big one, big one at home, number three versus number four. So looking forward to that one. Oh wow! I'll have to yeah. tune in. That'll be fun to yes, watch. Please do. Hopefully, we don't embarrass ourselves on a national stage and come out with a, with a W. <laughs> well, we're trying to squeeze the last bit out of fall here before the snow flies. Supposed to get some snow next week. So, oh wow, yeah, already, already. Oh yeah, that's what happens here in Montana. So, <laughs> summer to summer to winter, no fall. So, uh, we we've actually had a pretty nice fall, to be honest. This past weekend, we got out for a little camping and mountain biking trip, which was fun. My son, who is six, has somehow taken an interest in foraging. He's one of those kids that just gets kind of obsessed about a certain thing. And, and right now it's foraging. So yeah, we did a little mushroom foraging, which is new to me, but was pretty fun. Were you looking for a specific type of mushrooms? Around Iowa, morels are big. My grandpa used to look for morels all the time and fry them up in butter and they're pretty amazing. I mean, we were looking for something specific. Our bar was pretty low. Something that would okay. kill us or, <laughs> or give us an upset stomach was, was good for us. So it was good to not die while camping. You know, that's, that's, a, that's a good thing to achieve. Yeah. And, and we accomplished it. So good. Win, All win, right. win. That's awesome. That's good. Yeah. So, What's going on in the work world? Uh, the work world. Well, I'm sorry to report this is still on the personal side, but I did not win the Powerball. You know, that happened. And apparently there was a winner. And so I'm a little bummed out because I actually had it on my calendar, you know, win Powerball today. And it, did, it didn't come to fruition. So I don't know why that didn't happen. But uh, oh, be, shoot. <laughs> must be something to do with that Facebook outage, that epic Facebook outage. Probably. Well, yeah. just try again. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, hey, you can't win if you don't play, right? <laughs> or maybe we should just get back to real work and uh, <laughs> yeah, real not work. counting on Powerball. Stop, stop daydreaming. Yeah, that's a good idea. So, no, I mean, work-wise, have a pretty epic refactor on my hand. And I can kind of dive into that of what we're doing. But the, the really, it's kind of a... Lessons learned from the the last few months of working with various types of merchants and really just kind of seeing the expansion of where we need to go. And it just, maybe I'll back up. I mean, so when I, when I first built Tech Street Taylor, it was a very simple premise in the sense that you have merchants that have a list of subscribers that they want to send a text message to. And that text message would feature a single product and those customers can buy that product simply by interacting in the text thread, by replying yes or by replying with a quantity. So it was a very simple setup in the sense that you have one campaign, one product, one line item on the order that's placed. We're only dealing with one product at a time. Well, as I kind of talk to more merchants and see some different use cases, it's becoming very clear that we kind of need to move more towards a, a traditional e-commerce platform, not in the sense that it's going to be, have all the bells and whistles, but we kind of have some need to have some core functionality where you have products and those products can be sent in a campaign for sure, but there might be other ways that people can buy those products. And so you really need to separate 
the product from the campaign. And that's the major refactor that we're doing. Plus, I see the the opportunity for expanding what an, what's considered an order to have multiple lines. So you can add multiple products. And so you can have these cross-sells, add-on items, things like that during that purchase process and package that all up and put it onto one order. How are you thinking about where to draw the lines? I mean, obviously, you don't want to reinvent Shopify here. That sounds more than daunting. Yes, it is. <laughs> so that's the challenge that I'm see- seeing is there could be a version of text retailer that exists solely on Shopify in theory, where Shopify does all the heavy lifting with the checkouts and, and things like that. And we don't have to redo any of that. What I'm seeing though, is there's opportunity of providing some of those basic services, especially with some of our mom and pops, or even just our, our more specialty retailers. We need to have that whole order system in place. You know, one of our, one of our clients is a wine distributor. So they don't even, they have a website and that's it, but they're not doing e-commerce. They're selling to, you know, retailers and restaurants directly. And they're just kind of using text messaging as a new way to sell their wines to their existing customers. And if we didn't have that order infrastructure, they just, we we just wouldn't be providing enough for them. They're not going to, they're not about to put all their products on Shopify. It just doesn't make sense. So there is opportunity to bring that in-house, but you're absolutely right. There's a challenge there of how much are we trying to replicate or reinvent the wheel and how much do we want to bring in house? And that's something that I'm constantly struggling with. But one of the things that really came, came to light as I've been working with these different merchants and different ways that they want to provide offers to customers, because an offer can be sent either manually when the, the merchant you know blasts it out to their entire list, or it might be triggered on an action that someone takes. And so if you this really kind of comes into play with our automations. And so when a subscriber actually purchases something, now the merchant, now that I've separated or that I'm in the process of separating out these products directly from the campaigns, now we can have rules that are put into place in the system where as soon as someone buys that product, whether it is through a traditional product campaign, through text message, whether it's on their Shopify, you know, that's another thing that this has implications for Shopify, wherever they purchase that product. Now we can send them other messages that are based upon that product purchase, whether it's ask for a review, that upsell product, those other things. And so it really kind of, it's one of those things that it makes a lot more sense. And it probably is something that I should have seen coming when I first set out to build text retailer. But at the same time, I really wanted to get the concept out there as fast as possible. And so I didn't want to over-engineer at the beginning. And I just wanted to take my vision of send a campaign with a product, you buy it through text and prove that first. And since then, after talking to these merchants, learning more about the industries, it's clear that there's a much broader need and more flexibility from the merchant perspective. And yeah, the, the classic minimum viable product. I had a mentor who took to calling it minimum sellable product which I actually like much better because minimum viable product, right? It's like, okay, you know, sure, it's junk. It's just a landing page I'm going to push a bunch of people to and then collect email addresses. And and that's fine to start. But if you're going to really have a a viable product, you know, it it needs to be sellable. People need to pay you money for it. I think that's a great, great concept. I really, really like that because, you know, we're still in that validation period and the ultimate validator is, will someone give you money? (laughs) You know, for, for the product. And I think there's a certain level where you can do all of the, the research that you want, all of the surveys, you know, put up a a landing page with the concept and try to capture those emails. And that's great. And that's a, that's a nice strategy to kind of build awareness. 
But until you have actual users grinding it out and using the product and saying, this is great, I want to pay you money for this, you really don't have it validated at that point. And so I think there's been this huge movement of pre-validating before you build. And I agree with that to a certain point, but especially with something like with text retailer is until I can run a full transaction through text message, I can't really prove the concept to a merchant. I can't really say I can explain it to them, but until they actually see it and see that money hit their, their account, like, Oh, we just sold something through text message. That's when it really hits home. And it takes a lot of building to get to that point. And, and I'm sure that's true for, for what you're doing with PyTech, where you have to build out a lot in order to show value. You can't just have a landing page <laughs> that says, here's what we're <laughs> going to build. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, you, you can talk to people, obviously, and and should, and gather as much insight as you can. But at a certain point, I, I do think you have to build. And I think it's a little bit more than that MVP to get some true reactions. Because it's not just, will people pay me for it? Which is critical, of course. you know, And, and that's kind of the first hurdle to get over. But after that, it's now I have paying customers. What do they want and how much can I learn from them in the way that they're using the site? You know, you can do a lot of user testing and, and I like user testing, but there is an absolute difference in the SaaS world to me between a paid user, someone who is giving you money and therefore has expectations of your service and somebody who even with industry knowledge, you're just asking to kick the tires and, and use the site. So yeah, I think that there's definitely kind of that minimum sellable product. And, and it sounds like you're obviously there. You've got people paying you money. And they're also starting to kind of direct where your product's going to go. So building off of the single single SKU, I guess you'd call it, and into the multi-SKU and, and a little bit more full-featured platform, it makes sense. I think so. And it, and it really, and that's the reason I'm doing this. I'm not doing this refactoring just to make the backend prettier or to just redo the the schema so that it makes a little bit more sense. Because sure, there were there were some naming conventions that I used at the very beginning that I'd love to change, you know, but it's just, it's frankly, it's not worth my time to go back and change those at this point. You just kind of make do. But this is really something that by doing this refactoring, it really does open the door to a whole suite of new tools, new integrations, just a new way to kind of think about the platform that it is it is kind of a light e-commerce type solution that happens to be mainly based in text messaging. And it's getting it more to that prop build out. It's been a lot of work. It, it sucks to do a major refactoring like this because we are, I'm right in the core of the purchasing engine. And like you said, there's customers that are using it. And so as much as I can do testing in a test environment and, and make sure that I'm not, I'm not doing this, you have to think about how does this accommodate the current data that we have and new data that's going to be coming in and how do we migrate the two so it is uh it's a stickier situation it's a tougher tougher situation than if there were no customers and i can just wipe the databases clean start fresh and go go new and so it, it does feel i've been on this for probably two maybe three weeks right now and it feels it's a grind it's slow yeah you're not bolting on a feature you are no. refactoring something that is at the core of the product and could break absolutely at the same time, I am building those new features that are based upon this new infrastructure to kind of prove out those proof of concepts, because by building those out, I have a better sense of what the needs are for the new schema are and how to build the new architecture out for those new features. 
it's a lot of plates spinning all at once. And I'm, I'm looking forward to the day that I can, you know, merge all the code, get it into production and kind of clear my head because it feels like there's just a lot floating there right now to try to juggle all of this stuff that's in the air. How are you going to handle that? I mean, do you have like a date that you're going to flip the switch? Are you going to roll it out slowly? What's your plan? So we're early October right now. My goal is to have most of this done by end of October. And it's not going to be a hard flip the switch because this is so ingrained into the the platform. I'm kind of doing it in small chunks. Most won't be noticeable to the, the current customers. And so take the ordering example. So we have all these ex- existing orders that basically are tied to a single single SKU, a single product. So I'm already building out the the, the new tables and the new things to, to move those to multi-line orders. And so I'll do a backporting into that new schema of the existing orders that we have. And yes, they only have one, one order tied to them, but they'll be built in a way that they can support multiple orders. And so it's going to be kind of you know, refactoring and then moving the current data over to that piecemeal. And so trying to take those small pieces at a time. And then the last phase will be introducing the new products or the the new products interface to the current customers. So it's a lot of backend stuff that they won't see prepping for this until we actually roll out that new interface, send out emails to customers. Here's how you you set up a product. Here's how you set up a campaign now. It's slightly different, but here's all the benefits that you're going to get. And so it's it's going to be a it's going to be a slow roll rollout, I guess in that sense. But as far as an actual plan, it's kind of it's kind of build it first, take small steps, don't break production and and go from there. So I don't know. That sounded like a plan to me. So uh, I'm impressed. It's more so than my big data migration plan that is put it off as long as possible. At some point, we're going to have to take our mobile product, which has its own web interface, and merge it into the broader PipeTech project ecosystem. And that is going to be a massive data migration, all kinds of custom schemas that have to be mapped into more standardized schemas that exist in pipe tech project and customers with, you know, 15,000 plus records or 15,000 plus inspections. So it'll be, it'll be interesting. What's the main benefit that you're seeing for merging those, those concepts and doing the data migration? Well, there's a couple there that, that I'm thinking about one is that, so we, we call it pipe tech mobile just to give a quick snapshot. It's what wasn't intending on talking about this today. It's out in the future a bit, but, but we'll dive into it. Pipe tech mobile is a mobile based inspection tool. So a really lightweight way for people to inspect assets, you know, picture an iPad and a, a form. So you're filling out all the information about the asset on the iPad and then using things like the camera and the video camera, even the GPS to grab some basic information and, and log observations about the asset that they're inspecting. Mm-hmm. So we have this whole platform. I mean, it's been out there for now quite a few years. I, I should go back and look, but but definitely quite a few years. And we have a decent number of very loyal users who depend on it daily for their business operation. But it's getting long in the tooth and we haven't been updating it because we want to completely rewrite it and then move people into PipeTech Project in order to get them all on one platform for all of the different types of inspections they do. So essentially, PipeTech Mobile becomes one of many supported inspection technologies 
that you can use and then view all your inspections in one place. So when the migration's done, would this be considered a like a module of PipeTech project? Like you have PipeTech project and then you have a then you have mobile, or is just kind of an integrated feature that just exists within within the platform? Neither, really. Okay. They will be totally standalone but very intertwined products. So PipeTech PipeTech project is the single hub where you are feeding, or I, I keep saying you, but where a user uh, or a city is feeding all of the inspection data that they're collecting in order to be able to view it, analyze it, etc. So that's the ultimate home for the data. But within that, there's different ways that these municipalities are inspecting their assets from the robots that we talked about you know, quite a bit ago to actual like 3D capable technologies that will do a complete scan of, of the system to something lightweight for certain assets like a PipeTech mobile, in which case they're just taking little pictures, video, and feeding it in. So these are all different standalone products that feed into the main I platform. See. Okay. So the, the main platform is basically a way to organize, to to filter, to search, to do all the data manipulation they need to do, but different ways to get that data into the, the platform. And PipeTech Mobile is one of them. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, exactly. So we're, we're agnostic as to how you're collecting your data. We just want to warehouse it all and give you the tools to act on it efficiently. Got it. So this refactor, this this data migration would help that those two platforms talk to each other a lot simpler and and sync up data a lot easier. That's right. And of course, there's some cross-selling that we're hoping will happen too. Oh, sure. You know, hey, yeah. you're now pushing your inspections into PipeTech project instead of the legacy platform, PipeTech Cloud. Have I got an idea for you? <laughs> <laughs> well, and on the flip side, you know, hey, you don't necessarily need, you know, to the municipalities. There, there might be some cases where, you know, you're still sending those inspectors out and they either have paper and pen or, you know, it's a hassle to get out the big robot or the big equipment. You know, if you just have something that just needs some eyeballs on it, just take out this iPad, push some things on the button and it comes into your same platform as a, as a different type of inspection. So, yeah, I can definitely see the opportunity to cross sell there. Yeah, right tool for the job. So, yeah, we've been kind of getting down into the weeds, preparing for that or at least setting the groundwork for that. But in order to do that, a lot of it has been refactoring as well. We're deep into some known tech debt territory. So, you know, as we created PipeTech Project, we hard-coded certain things and took, you know, I'll, I'll use the word shortcuts. We took certain shortcuts, but we did so very deliberately because we're kind of a giant ETL platform, extract, transform, load platform. I mean, so we're taking all these different data sources and standardizing them and presenting them in certain ways. And that's really complicated. So there were certain places where we deliberately said, hey, we can hard code this or get around you know, that particular nuanced schema in order to move forward more quickly. But the day has come where it's time to really make sure we are as dynamic as we want to be. And what that means in our world is building schemas on the fly and allowing a user to throw practically any data at us and then making sure that we are capturing the right information. You know, a great example that we're facing right now is that we have some users who have source data without units. 
So we have to then so, wait. So it's just like five or like 10 yeah, without yeah. any reference. Well, That's what right. do you do with that? <laughs> you don't know if it's inches or feet or meters. Yeah. So, oh man, <laughs> you can see where the problem comes pretty quickly. <laughs> But in, in the world where these systems were set up long and long ago, it was just standard. People knew that you referred to the diameter of oh. a pipe in inches if you're in the U.S. and that you referred to the depth of a manhole or the length of a pipe. In. So they didn't worry about it. They all just kind of knew based on industry experience what units they were talking about. So there's there's knowledge that's not in the software, but it's, it's still known, you know, to that's all right. the users. Uh, that seems like that's where you get into like, Oh, we crashed the Rover into Mars because one guy was on feet and the other guy was on meters and Oh, it hit the, hit the ground at 300 miles an hour. Oops. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And it probably has happened, although I haven't run into it in our world, but you know, we, we still have to, we need that information. I mean, for the things that we're doing with the data, which is a lot of mapping it into other formats and, and displaying it and allowing for comparisons and analysis without units, you know, we're kind of screwed. Well, and you, and you can't, you can't make that assumption. Either. Exactly. Because there might be the one contractor, the one municipality that does it differently. And then you run, do run into that situation where you assumed that that measurement was in inches and it was actually in feet and things are way off. <laughs> and, and that's precisely where we are when I say we're doing some refactoring of our, of our tech debt, right? Because we have made those assumptions carefully, but when we basically know, we have a pretty good idea. You know, we're, we're 90% sure that it's going to be inches. So We'll hard code inches. But now what we need to do is allow for the customers to update that and make sure that it's done in a graceful way so that they're not feeling a huge burden because they are used to simply tossing around this unitless data. And so now we have to actually ask them and say, no, for each of these fields, please specify what the units are, right? And I'm sure you can do some some handholding there with you know, we, we assume that the manhole cover is going to be in inches. So we default that field to inches, but they have to confirm that potentially that you could do in the interface and kind of guide them along and be like, this is our assumption, change it if you want, but you need to make a decision here and get this data in here. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's a lot of what we're doing and then making sure in the, in the back end, you know, in their system preferences, they can make those changes as well. But natively, we're, we store everything in, in millimeters and then convert on the fly. So there's a handful of little things like that. And I, I won't get too into the weeds, but you know we allow custom fields. Again, we allow them to throw pretty much anything at us that then gets mapped to more standardized schemas. So there's just there's other nuance with data types and other things that we now have to be absolutely sure about because otherwise it does risk the the, the rover crashing and, and yeah. we don't want that so i'm curious so you obviously one of the main goals is to add more customization more flexibility with the system and and that's what's the onus for a lot of the changes that i'm doing on text retailer too is i see that need for more flexibility for the merchants more customization on how they want their customers to interact is this something that based upon the current beta users that you have that they're kind of expressing this or is this just something that you see as a need for the product to become to take it to that next level and be a little bit more polished well it really gets down to the whole idea of minimum viable product versus minimum sellable product right and so 
we kind of built out the minimum viable by making some of these assumptions. But in order to really get it out into the marketplace, we have to have this. I mean, we're trying to integrate with all types of other enterprise platforms, and we have to, we just have to do the work now in order to make it sellable. So it's not necessarily something somebody came to us and said, Hey, I'm having this problem or something we observed. It was known. And now we're just at the point where it makes sense to do it. But you, you definitely see that you're missing out on potential opportunities. If you, if you kept the software where it is right now, you didn't do this refactoring, you can foresee issues down the line with a certain type of customer or potential customer down the line. And it's just, it's just, like you said, it's a known issue that has to be resolved eventually. And now's the right time to do it. Yeah, that's exactly it. We knew this was coming. It's here now. And it's kind of exciting that we get to do it. I mean, which it's tech debt. It's absolutely tech debt, but I'm really pro tech debt. I think that you have to take on some debt in order to move quick. And the key is that word that I used before, deliberate, right? I mean, we made these choices deliberately saying, okay, we're going to skip over this or gloss over it for now so that we can really get people using the software, but it's going to come up and we need a plan to address it at some point. And so now we're at that point. So it kind of stinks and it is painful to be doing all this work and not seeing shiny new features roll out the door. You know, nobody's going to get excited and say, oh, you've got units now. That's awesome. (laughs) (laughs) But but why do I need units? It's six. (laughs) I I know what it is. Oh yeah. No, I mean, that's, that's, I, I like that take. And I think like all things, when, when I, when I look at tech debt, I kind of equate it to real world debt in the, you know, financial debt in the sense that there's good debt and there's bad debt that's out there. And debt on its own is not inherently bad. You know, just because you have debt doesn't mean that you're in a bad spot. It's debt is a tool. And sometimes having that debt can be beneficial. Like you said, you know, I going back to text retailer and how I first built it. Yeah. I probably should have spent a little bit more time thinking about how the entire system is going to function and how I might integrate with these different e-commerce platforms. Part of that was, I just didn't know the market well enough. I hadn't talked, I had not yet talked to the customers and seeing how they're using the real world. So frankly, I just didn't know. But even if I took that time to build it out, my fear was, over-engineering in those early steps, you know, without that proof of concept and without that initial feedback from merchants. And so my goal at the very early stage was get it out there as fast as possible, accumulate some of that tech debt, you know, just build for the problem that I'm trying to solve and the problem that I'm trying to to prove, knowing that I'll probably have to make changes down the line and and expand the the functionality based upon what those what those merchants are saying. But if I don't have those merchants using the platform, I, I'm never going to have learn those lessons. Right. <laughs> so right. It's it's taking on that that tech debt to get out there as fast as possible. And so again, it kind of goes back to how do you apply that debt and what benefits do you get? And that good versus bad, you know, again, equating to the financial statement, if you have good debt, you know, buying a rental property potentially can be good debt. You know, buying an education can be good debt. Putting a brand new car on a credit card, not the best use of debt. <laughs> and so, <laughs> again, it goes back to what you were saying for about that purposeful it's known, you know, it didn't blindside you. It's not like one day you woke up and be like, oh my gosh, we don't have units and we need to figure this out. And it's, and it's a, it's a huge issue that impacts all of our customers. It's known. It's something that you put in the roadmap and it served a purpose to get you to market faster so that you can get those iterations. 
So at this point, you've got a couple successful products under your belt. You know, this isn't your first rodeo. Do you feel like you're getting a better sense of what's worth it to take on in terms of tech debt and what needs to be solved right away? Yes and no. I mean, the, the other way that I look at it is I think the needs of using tech debt for a new company or a new project is much different than than what a mature product would need. And and frankly, even with my previous product, it really wasn't terribly mature. Textiful is is there, it's out in the wild, but it's not like I had a team of engineers and we had to have these processes to kind of put out new features. It was still myself that was building all this stuff. And I think I think there's a lot of a lot of things that come into play with tech debt, especially when you get into that team of developers, because there's ways that you can accumulate that debt just through process of building more, more software. And so, yeah, I, am, am I better at it? Maybe, maybe not. I do know that with, with text retailer, my number one goal was to build as fast as possible and to get a customer using the product as fast as possible. So it really kind of, I, I went backwards from, okay, they need to be able to, to make it, you know, to, to complete a transaction. What does that require? Oh, well, we got to capture a credit card. We have to be able to store that. We have to have all the necessary shipping information from that. You know, we need to have the ability to send a text and to receive a text. And so all those building blocks were, were laid out. And my goal was, Let's put these together, all these building blocks as fast as possible in order to to get going. And I knew that that was going to be probably not the best architecture long term. And so that was a purposeful decision to make. I think I would have a much different viewpoint if I can fast forward three years from now, maybe sooner, when text retailer is, quote unquote, more mature and has has a more sophisticated product. I don't think I would be as light, as willing to take on tech debts at that point with a mature product, I think it'd be much more, we have the resources, we have the time, let's quote unquote, build it right before shoving out there that feature as fast as possible. So I don't know. I think, I think my, my views kind of change depending on where the, where the product lives, but there's always going to be surprises. You know, I, again, I, I viewed when I first started building text retailer, I viewed it, it's going to be this one thing and it's going to do this one thing really well. And now my eyes have opened to the potential and all these different features and different products that I see a need for now that I've talked to customers. So it just changes. Yeah. And keeping that prioritization is probably one of the key things that we all have to do as, as founders, right? Because, okay, it can expand, it can do all these things, but what should it do? And what does it make the most sense to do at this stage in its evolution? Yeah. And, and I think some of that stuff, especially in the early days can happen just by just <laughs> in the day to day, in the sense that like when I first launched text retailer, we didn't, I didn't have a system that would keep track of messaging credits at all. You know, so the first user, the first merchants that were using it, they basically just had free text messaging just because I wanted to use the product. And so I didn't even have a system to track those messaging credits, which is the main driver of revenue. <laughs> For, for the platform, <laughs> you know, and so it's like the main way that we kind of uh, divide our different plan structures, and it just wasn't in there in in the early days. And I figured, you know, if this thing was going to work, build the building system later. And you know, once I start people on an actual paid plan, well, I have thirty days to kind of figure out the building system because I said you're going to start on your plan. Your free trial starts now. I have thirty days <laughs> to figure it out. Yeah. So it's just it's stuff like that where you're you're building the railroad track while you're you're driving down it. So it's that's super short term tech tech debt. Like you know mm-hmm. that that has to be built in. It's 
when you undertake that larger, long-term, more systemic tech debt, when that becomes more of a strategic, like what you're doing, you know, and, and realizing that that's just something that is part of the roadmap and feature new features are going to be put on hold while we kind of clean up this stuff that users will never see and probably never notice. Yeah. Yep. And I'll, I'll give another example of that. Actually, that this is something that users will see and, and will ask for, but just kind of an, an approach to tech debt, if you want to even call it that. Maybe it's just lack of a feature. But uh, right now, we don't have any roles within our users, right? So every user has the same permissions, but we know that we're going to need a, a probably a pretty robust system. And so we've laid the foundation for that and we've made sure that, you know, that's going to be possible, but we're not investing the time in actually developing the feature right now. So yeah, maybe, maybe that's more deferred feature building, but it would have become tech debt if we hadn't realized that that's going to be a need and hadn't laid the foundation. I mean, it would have been a lot, lot more painful or if we, if we didn't architect it in such a way that we can support it later. I think that's something that comes with experience too. Like, if you were building this from, from day one, and, and we have the same problem in text retailer, we're going to have different users on the inside for the merchants. They're going to want access to different things. And you're right. We've, we've kind of somewhat built that out a little bit. Like we kind of have some very loose, oh yeah, you can have access to this page or not this section, but it's going to get more in depth as the product matures. And realizing that those things are just inherent in software in general, especially when you move to kind of enterprise level type software, that's just a need that they have. Generally speaking, you, you want to carve that out. And I think that comes with experience because again, if you're caught completely flat footed with that and you're like, oh, we have to go rip up the entire system in order to accommodate that, that's a tough pill to swallow. Absolutely. Although I think we should probably put a little calendar invite out there and, and revisit this conversation in a couple months because then we can talk about all the tech debt that we completely screwed up and didn't plan for. Yeah, and I think that's inevitable. I mean, just as you learn more about your customer base, their needs, there, there's going to be stuff that your software doesn't do that wasn't anticipated that, like you said, you might consider that tech debt, maybe. But again, you don't want to get so much into some semantics of what is and is not tech debt and how do you repay it or when do you repay it? It's just kind of like, it, to me, it just, it comes back to, is this holding up the product or is this holding up a new, my entry into a new market, you know, by not having these features, by not having these, these expected functionality, am I limiting myself and preventing myself from getting new customers? That's always one of the the, the flags that I, or the, the, the standards that I use is to figure out what what should we be building? <laughs> and it's like, does this help increase revenue? You know, does this increase current customer satisfaction? Does the make it make the product better for an actual purpose of driving revenue? So yeah. I love that. I think that's a good place to wrap up here. I think that's a good place to end on. So yeah, good closing words, Sam. But before we completely sign off, what are you into this week? So I have been caught up into the uh, the phenomenon that is Squid Game on Netflix. I, I I have no idea what that is. Oh, it's it's kind of it's it's a Korean show and it's it's a nine episode one season deal and it's kind of like a mix between Survivor, a Saw, and there was one other kind of. But it's it's just it's it's this game show type of. 
it's a, it's a storyline. I don't know. It's hard to explain. It's one of those things that you kind of have to watch. It's kind of horror film. It's kind of, but it just, man, it just captures you. And I'm, I'm all about it. I, I just, I, I binged it in like two weeks. I was watching it during lunch and just like, I couldn't Whoa. get enough of it. And so my wife saw it a couple of times. Like she walked in the room. She's like, what the hell is this? I don't want anything to do with this show. And so I, I don't know. It was, it was right there for me. I loved it. Well, I'll have to check it out. Never heard of it. Sounds pretty enticing. Well, they just they just released it, I think, a couple of weeks ago. And Netflix is saying it's it's on track to be their most popular, maybe international show ever. Like, so it's like it's just taking Netflix by storm and and people are really, really loving it. So it's a lot of fun. Gotcha. Hunger Hunger oh. Games was the other was the other reference. Yeah. So it's like Oh, okay. It's like Hunger Survivor crossed too. with Hunger Games with Saw. Yeah, that's that's how I would describe it. Wow. Sounds yeah. <laughs> also slightly terrifying. It is. <laughs> it makes you think. It sticks with you a little bit. All right. Well, my, mine's a little simpler. I am just loving and enjoying the CleanShot app for screenshots on a Mac. Those guys have done a great job. Yes, 100%. It's one of my favorites as well. I, I love that you're bringing this up because when I saw this, I, or I'm, it's just surprising how often I use it. Yeah. It, it integrates perfectly into almost any workflow. I think they've nailed the features. It's, it's not too bloated. One of the few apps that, you know, when they come out with an upgrade and say, Hey, we need some more money for this. It's, it's actually not monthly. It's, it's a paid, you know, I guess package software, more model downloaded from the app store. But every once in a while, they'll come out with a brand new version and it's like 20 bucks or 17 bucks. And I am more than happy to, to pay that and keep them going because it's a great app. It is. And, and maybe we talk a little bit for those that aren't familiar, it's it's more than just taking screenshots. And so it definitely does that. The way that I use it is huge for customer support in the sense that I can have the customer's account on up and running and I see it. And if they have a question, not only can you take a screenshot and it can be a section of, of that page. So you're not taking the entire page if you don't want it. You can kind of highlight what you want. But then they have these posts editing tools that I use all the time. So it's, it's amazing. Yeah, the annotation where you can draw an yes. arrow or add a couple numbers. I use the kind of an auto numbering annotation tool and then oh, you can yeah. describe that to a customer. Yep. Yeah. And just adding those visuals, like you said, a simple arrow or a box of like, here's what you need to focus on. Because before I always sent like screenshots of the page and kind of describe what they need to do. And that was okay, but like to throw an arrow, big red arrow, like click this button, <laughs> it just, it goes such a long way for that customer support. And I had one, one email the other day where I literally walked them through a process. In retrospect, it probably should have been a Zoom vi- a Loom video because it was so uh, intertwined. But honestly, it was like five screenshots with arrows the whole way. And they were able to, to take that complicated process and nail it just through, through a handful of screenshots. Well, then, and, and the last thing I'll say about this is the workflow of you take the screenshot, quick and easy. It then appears as like a little window in, in the lower right-hand corner of your screen. And you can either save it right there or you can click it to annotate it. So I'll take the screenshot, one click, now I'm annotating it. And then even the annotation window has a little drag bar. So then I can just drag it right into an email or a Slack conversation or whatever it is. So, yep. Love it. If you're not using CleanShot for Mac, definitely worth the download. If anybody knows of something similar on Windows, I would love to hear it because we do have some folks in our industry who are Windows only and 
I can't find anything that holds a candle to clean shot. So let me know. That's a side project right there. Sounds like you got your next, <laughs> next, next venture. Nope. I'm up. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, Sam, have a great week and uh, you as well. I look forward to catching up with you next week. Yes. Thanks everyone for listening. We'll, we'll talk to you soon.